0: We are going to talk this week, last week we got through, I guess, most of, it was class three, which was prayer. So we talked almost exclusively about prayer last week. We also got into Bible reading and church, the need for Bible reading, why uh, attend church. And we said at the end last week that effectively, um, the essence of the Christian life as far as if you want to learn and grow is you pray, you read your Bible, you go to church and this is the essence of of the Christian life. We did skip a few things um, within the church section in particular because we were kind of out of time. Uh, We talked about the purpose of the church. I didn't talk to you about qualified leadership. I gave you the the passages of scripture on qualified leadership and we kind of skipped that a little bit um, just because of of time. But uh, I hope that that will be profitable for you. And then all the verses are there of course. So, you can You can go back and look at them as you have time. I am going to skip at least initially class four, which was intended to be earthly and heavenly treasure. Um, we were going to talk about the the relationship between um the Christian and money, and the reason why I'm skipping that is because we kind of hit it a little bit that that first week and um as I'm having to economize on time now, I'm trying to make sure, okay, which which lessons are going to be the most profitable, the most beneficial. And while I would say this group, uh, even in comparison to other groups, uh, might benefit more from the idea of earthly versus heavenly treasure because there's some very successful men here. At the same time, we have covered it in a couple of different uh, ways, and I hope to get back to it next week. So we'll just kind of see how that goes. Of course, you can still have the material, And um, you can read through it on your own and glean what the Bible has to say about it um, on your own. And and I'd be more than happy, as I always say after after and during each of these classes, I'd be more than happy to sit down with you anytime, Um, not just during this course and uh, over a cup of coffee, over dinner, whatever, and talk through anything that you would have as far as questions in regard to the church, in regard to the Bible. Um, I I live for that stuff. So... um, I'd be happy to do that for you. This week, we're going to talk about anger and emotions first. Of anything that I've found since I've become a pastor, um, I found that 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 uh, um, anger, emotion, particularly anger and forgiveness, is one of the things that not only most people struggle with forgiveness in, in particular there, but uh, is one of the leading causes in my in my um, experience of real problems in homes in in individuals. Um, the, the uh, degree to which people become embittered and resentful and live in resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness uh, it does not just affect people's relationships. It, it actually affects, it can affect physically, it can affect mentally, uh, a good number of people that I deal with at the jail. Um, when, when we work through the process of forgiveness, um, if they're able to get a hold of that concept, it, it changes their lives, it changes them physically, it changes them emotionally, it changes their relationships. There was one woman that uh, I led to the Lord a couple of years ago, uh, and this was not in the jail, and she started coming to church, and uh, at the time, we were my wife and I were discipling her individually as well, and we worked on forgiveness, and when, once she was able to forgive, and she was able to release those uh, bitter, the bitterness and resentment that had built up in her, um, she, the physical manifestations were, were amazing. She was on Social Security disability for bipolarism, and she had anxiety and depression and all of these things. And within a year of her dealing with that forgiveness, she was off her medication. She was back at work. It was just amazing to see how how much we know that the mind and the body, the mind has a lot of power over the body, right? We, we all know that, but the spirit is oftentimes what affects the mind and this is this is such an important aspect of our lives that we get that we keep our spiritual lives right because it can affect our mind it can affect our bodies it can affect our health it can affect all of these things and that's not the primary reason the primary reason is because god commands us to but I, i'm going to hopefully give you some some insight today into how this can can come to pass and this is not going to be an easy one because forgiveness is not something that even, it's hard to do, but even more than that, a lot of times we don't want to do it. It's the exact opposite of what we want to do. We want to punish people by withholding forgiveness. We want to make them feel as bad as we feel for what they did to us. We want these things. And so forgiveness is really, really a faith issue. It is an issue that takes time, it takes effort, it takes um, determination, it takes prayer, it takes the help of the Spirit of God. And we'll work through that a little bit together. I'm, as I try to do uh, together, I'm going to start very foundational and build so that you can see where we're going with this. And I'm starting simply with the principle of emotions. <laughs> Human emotions reflect the image of God and man. The Bible says in Genesis that God created man in His image, after His likeness. We know that God uh, reflects many of the same emotions that we reflect. God loves. I give you John 3:16 therefore, for God so loved the world. God hates. Proverbs 6, 16-19. These six things that the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto Him. God laughs. Uh, um, Psalm 2, 4. God gets angry. Numbers twenty two twenty two. 22. 22 uh, God is jealous. Uh, Deuteronomy 5, 9. We also see in the New Testament. The Spirit of God being jealous. Um, on page 2. Uh, uh, at the end of page 1. God grieves. The, page 2 is the um, reference there. Um, Psalm 78.40, how often did they, that would be Israel, provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? God has joy. In Zephaniah 3.17, the Bible says that he rejoices over his own with joy and joy over them with singing. God has compassion. For the Lord will judge his people, Deuteronomy 32.36, and repent himself um, for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left, the idea that that um, God has compassion upon his own people. So as we understand that God is, if we want to call it this way, God is, yeah, he has emotions. I wouldn't call him an emotional person, but he exhibits the same emotions at least as the Bible expresses it. We don't know exactly how that plays out in God, whether the idea is simply a way for which um, the Bible to kind of describe what's happening as it plays out. I'm not saying God is emotional. He's not driven by emotions in any way, shape, or form. But God is responsive. So certain things drive God to respond in a certain way by his nature. Certain things drive God to to act, as we would call it, angry. There's certain things are things that God rejects or hates. There are certain things that God approves of or loves. So um, I'm not trying to say that God is emotional, but he does exhibit the personality traits of emotion as it pertains to how the Bible describes him. Now, that being said, that means that God created us, and he created us in the image of God with emotions, and that as we th- think of emotions, emotions, human emotions, have a virtuous outlet. Uh, we, we think of love, and we say, okay, there's great virtue in love, uh, and, and it's true, and we think of things such as joy and happiness, and there's great virtue in these things, but but. Every emotion that that God created in us, we have to understand that if if God built it into us, then it is not intrinsically sinful. If God built it into us, then it's not by its very nature wrong. Anger is not by its nature wrong. Jealousy is not by its nature wrong. Sorrow is not by its nature wrong. There is a virtuous outlet for each one of these emotions. And I give you some of these uh, uh, on page three, godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a sorrow that compels a person to fall upon God for help or mercy. He, he is sorrowful and he seeks to remedy that by fleeing to, to God, by fleeing to, to God for help, by fleeing to God for forgiveness, by fleeing to God for whatever it might be. So in, in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul is writing to the Cor- Corinthian church and he's talking about the, the first letter he wrote to them, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was a letter of rebuke, of deep rebuke. To the church. And Paul actually says that as he wrote 1 Corinthians, he wrote it in sorrow. He wrote it with tears because he he was afraid of of them having to hear this tremendous rebuke by him. And, And he says, as he considers their response in the second letter, he says, for though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, he says, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So we have this concept of these two different types of sorrow, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. We'll talk more about worldly sorrow. I, I believe it's... it's um, let me double check and make sure if not, yeah. Um, we'll talk about uh, unworldly uh, sorrow in a little bit, but godly sorrow is a sorrow that, that says I'm, I've done wrong. I should not have done that or whatever it might be. A sorrow over having to cause someone pain when you don't want to, but you know you need to, as in what Paul did in the First Corinthians. He was going to rebuke them and he didn't want to rebuke them and he knew it was going to hurt them. But like the child, right, who you smack his hand before he can touch the burner because you don't want him to feel the greater pain... Sometimes the most loving thing that we can do for someone is cause pain, is cause a, a, a layer of sorrow that will stop them from doing something worse, stop them from, from harming themselves or others in a deeper way. So we, we see this idea. I also give you Psalm 77. Um, uh, the the uh, Asaph is writing this psalm, and he's writing about a time where he was, he was so sorrowful, he says, um, that he couldn't even speak. He says in verse 2, In the day of trouble I sought the Lord. My sword ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. He uh, asks in verse 9, Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in His anger shut up mercies forever? So this sorrow, in this sorrow, the psalmist felt distant from God. And that, that distance from God actually compelled him to seek out for God. To cry out to God, to flee to God, and he and God was found. Uh, uh, he he found God. God was found of him. So again, we see godly sorrow compelling obedience. Uh, there's a few more verses on that next page. I, I I'm not gonna dwell on it. Uh, we see godly anger. Uh, page four. We we often call it righteous indignation. Uh, godly anger is anger that's inspired by unrighteousness, compels us to obedience, and compels us to call others out of disobedience. We'll we'll uh, talk about that a little bit later when we when we actually get to anger. There's godly jealousy. Jealousy is when I when, when there's something that is mine. And so I am claiming the right to exclusivity for that which is mine. So I define it here as being guarded over something that is yours to claim by right and having an expectation of exclusivity or privilege over that right. So uh, the, the example I give here is me and my wife. Now, when you, say, when you think of a jealous husband, there's a worldly jealousy where a husband doesn't trust his wife, right? But there is an element of jealousy within the marriage relationship that is absolutely appropriate. That my wife is mine and I am hers by right. And nobody else has a right to her. And and nobody else has a right to me in that marriage way, in the physical relationship, these sorts of things. And so I have the right to be jealous over her in that way. That is my right because she said I do. That's virtuous. That That is right in every way. God built that into me. And God built that into her as a part of... Of, of virtuous humanity. However, then if I say well because my wife is mine by right I'm, I'm not going to let her talk to anyone well then I've gone beyond the bounds of my right. right? It is my right that, that there's a physical relationship that's exclusive between her and me. It is not my right that she's not allowed to talk to anyone. That, that goes beyond what I have the right to be jealous over. Now I've, Now I've become sinful in my jealousy. So godly jealousy uh, 2 Corinthians 11 verses 1-4, through 4. Paul tells the, the church there, uh, This it's again in 2 Corinthians, he says in verse 2, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, and I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. So he says, I'm jealous over you as a church. You as a church, you've been living in impurity, and I, as, as your, one of your spiritual leaders, I have the right to desire you to be exclusive to Christ alone, and not to wander into error and not to wander into idolatry. And this is a godly jealousy that I'm jealous over you for the sake of Christ. And so we see that jealousy has a righteous outworking. Hate also has a righteous outworking. Uh, Hate in the Bible actually is not necessarily as much key to the emotion of loathing something as it is simply to rejecting something or to placing something even uh, lower in favor or value. So the word hate in our Bible does not have the same connotation we have today. If I were to give you a, a definition of hatred, it would be to place lower in value or priority. And uh, that would be to hate something. The, to, to love less is almost what the word means oftentimes in the scripture. Sometimes it does carry with it the emotions of hatred and rejection and loathing and those sorts of things. But um, it, godly hate is rejecting those things that God has rejected. Jude 1, verses 22 and 23, uh, there's only one chapter in Jude, but um, he, uh, as Jude is uh, talking about winning people, he says, If some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted with the flesh. Reject impurity, reject compromise as you seek to win people. Revelation 2, 6, God commends the church... Um, this would be the uh, Church of Ephesus, for hating the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which he says, I also hate. He says, you hate it, and and I commend you for that, because that's something I hate too. In the Bible, a a righteous hatred is hating what God hates. And and there is a righteous outworking of the idea of hatred. Uh, Godly joy. Joy, uh, with, with, um, with each of these so far, the negative that we'll talk about The worldly system is the same idea. Godly sorrow, worldly sorrow. Godly uh, hatred, worldly hatred. Godly anger, worldly anger. With um, godly joy, the closest thing that the world has to this is actually just the word happiness. Joy is defined as an abiding peace based upon a relationship with our faithful creator and Savior regardless of circumstances. So joy is something that is above circumstances. That when circumstances are doing this, that sometimes I'm happy and sometimes I'm sad, joy is this abiding contentment that says, God is in control. I can trust Him. I love Him. I'm going to continue to do what's right. I justify God in the midst of my circumstances. Kind of like what we talked about last week when you asked about prayer uh, and um, justifying God in the midst of things such as a child that has a, has a, a debilitating disease or or what not. The idea being that I'm not going to be happy when I see my child or someone else's child suffering but I can still have a joy in my heart that says God is on the throne I'm going to serve him, I'm going to justify him in the midst of this, of this time of sorrow and I'm going to use it to glorify God and to bless others. And this is the idea of joy and it, while it is not all emotional it does r- roll over into an emotion. Top of page 5 there. Um... uh, Again, 2 Corinthians 4. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment... Worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. All throughout the New Testament, we see instances where Paul is, is being beaten, he's being stoned, the, the, the apostles are being thrown in prison, and uh, if you think of Paul and Silas in the jail in Philippi, they are singing praises unto the Lord as they're in a jail simply for a thought crime, Right? How could they possibly sing praises unto the Lord? Well, their circumstances weren't great, but what they knew is that they were there for the Lord. (laughs) Paul calls himself the Lord's prisoner. And so they could rejoice knowing that while they were suffering in this life, there were treasures in the life to come on the basis of their suffering. And it's a perspective issue. And then this perspective does give way to actual happiness, where I can walk away from something with happiness saying, yes, that was not good from an earthly material perspective, but... But wow, God is at work here. And that puts us on a different plane. And then godly love. Godly love, I define it as an unconditional choice to do what is best for another or the object of that love, regardless of self-interest or circumstance. Um, we know that there's such thing as godly love. Jesus Christ exhibited that in fullness on the cross. First Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? Um, I give you verses 4 through 7 there. the King James uses the word charity rather than love. But it's the same thing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. The idea being that true love is extremely patient. True love is kind. True love does not seek my own happiness, but the happiness of others. True love is not able to be easily provoked. And true love does not assume evil. This is something my children are working on right now. So and so does something and they assume that their sister or brother is trying to annoy them or hurt them. And we sit them down and we say, do you love your sister? Yes. Well, love does not think evil. Love does not assume evil. As a matter of fact, love assumes right. Even if they did mean evil, you assume until you know otherwise that they did not. That they were not intending evil against you. And that, that's what true love is. Um, of course, uh, John 3.16 I give you there. And then John 15.13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. We'll, we, we'll talk about, when we get to the family a little bit, this idea of true love as well. The Bible says that husbands are to love their wives. And uh, the idea of love, loving your wife, is not just um, a surface level thing. right? The idea of charity, of truly loving her, is to pour yourself into her, is to, to think of her above yourself, is to rejoice where she rejoices, is to bear, believe, hope, and endure all things. And uh, we'll talk more about that. Any questions on the godly manifestations of any of these emotions? Well, naturally, as we see throughout the Bible, all the, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden... What God created in virtue, any virtue can become a vice. Everything that that God created in virtue, um, sin, was able to pervert. And so sin has perverted all of these emotions in us that if we are, remember we talked about that lamp analogy, right? Plugged into the spirit, then we are going to manifest the godly nature of emotions. If we're plugged into our flesh, then what is going to come out of us is the ungodly, manifestation of these emotions, and the ungodly manifestations of these emotions is what it causes so much problem in relationships and in our own lives today. Ungodly sorrow. Uh, this is self-pity. This is despair. This is where there is no hope left. This is where you, you to despair is to turn your back on God and to say that, that even God can't help me. Despair is ungodly sorrow. Self-pity is ungodly sorrow, where I fold into myself and I just... I throw a pity party and now everything is about me and everything is about how people are harming me and hurting me and everything is against me. Um, and and this, this self-pity that we can get into is crippling. And it cripples us because now instead of saying, no, people may have done wrong, whatever, but I'm just going to get up and I'm going to move on, I allow that to literally cripple me and I stay down. Uh, self-pity and despair, uh, self-pity in particular is a big, uh, big one that I work on in the jail because these people, society's harmed me, so-and-so's harmed me, my parents have done this and done that, and they throw a little pity party, and the next thing you know, where, how does that manifest itself in going back and doing more crime? That's what self-pity drives them to do. Well, if nobody, if nobody else is going to care about me, I'm not going to care about myself. And then they go on a self-destructive path because of self-pity and despair. So 2 um, uh, Corinthians 4 Paul writes, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you should never get to the point of despair because Christ is always there. Likewise, um, self-pity is the exact opposite of um, focusing on the Lord is focusing on self. And anytime we focus on self, we are going to be in a rough place. And so again, it is something that is ungodly. Uh, we see an example of it in First Kings 21. Um, in 1 Kings 21, Ahab, uh, he's a, he was an evil king of the northern tribe of Israel and he wanted a vineyard. And um, the man that he wanted it from, the man that owned it, was a man named Naboth. So he went to Naboth and said, hey, can I have your vineyard? And I'll give you a better one if you give me yours. And Naboth said no. He wanted it because it had joined his estate there, his, his um, castle, as it were. And Naboth said no. And he didn't want to give it up because the Lord had given each person their inheritance. And he said, no, I'm going to keep the inheritance the Lord has given me. And uh, so Ahab, the Bible says came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give the the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid down him upon the bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. He threw a pity party and he said, I'm just not going to eat then. And he was literally pouting until such time as his wife rolled her eyes and said, well, fine, if if you want it so bad, I'm going to get it for you. And she went and she had Naboth killed and she gave her husband the vineyard. Um, And his pity party uh, did nothing but bring about evil right? Um, Ungodly anger, we'll talk about that in a moment. Ungodly jealousy. Uh, We see ungodly jealousy in Saul. So Saul was the king before David. David was anointed to be the next king because Saul had been a wicked man. Ungodly jealousy is being guarded over something that you do not have the right to claim exclusivity over, and yet you are demanding an exclusivity that is not your right an an expectation of privilege that is not your privilege to have. This is ungodly jealousy. Um, So uh, we see that that Saul uh, sought to maintain a, a, a hold on the kingdom even though it was no longer his to have. Verse 27 of 1 Samuel 20, And it came to pass on the morrow, which was the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said unto Jonathan his son, Wherefore cometh not the son of Jesse to meet, neither yesterday nor today? And Jonathan answered, Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, Let me go, I pray thee, for our family hath a sacrifice in the city, and my brother, he hath commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in thine eyes, let me get away, I pray thee, and see my brethren. Therefore he cometh not to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said unto him, Thou son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion. He's jealous over his son, because his son has chosen to be loyal to David over him. And then he says in verse 31, For as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established, nor thy kingdom. Wherefore now send and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. His jealousy gave way to actually wanting to kill David in order to not let David have what God had given to David and to keep it for himself and not just for himself, but for his son and his posterity. Uh, So Saul's jealousy gave way to rage and really led to insanity. If you read the story, Saul... Uh, goes out of his mind he he effectively abandons his his role as king of the country and he spent months just chasing daniel around the country, uh, daniel david around the country trying to kill him and each time david had an opportunity to kill saul and did not and david would confront him with this he'd weep and he'd say david you're right you're you're you're, you're justified and then they'd go their separate ways and then saul would start trying to kill david again i mean he 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 went insane and it was brought about by his hatred, his jealousy for David. The jealousy gave way to hatred. <clears throat> Ungodly hate is the next one that I give you there on page 7. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use and persecute you. Uh, Titus 3, 3-5. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived... Serving diverse, that would mean various lusts and pleasures. Living in malice and envy. Hateful and hating one another.
1: I have a question. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, so you, you're supposed to love your enemy, okay? So like when I look in business and I have some competitors mm-hmm. that are fairly nasty and they say things about me or, you know, they, they, they just do what they can to keep us from getting business. And, and I think to myself, I don't hate you, I just want to put you out of business I want to take all of your clients because we do it better than you, mm-hmm. right? That's my mentality. And I'm going, is that hating them? Because I don't, I don't hate them, but I definitely want to dismember their business. Mm-hmm. Is that, am, I, am I bad? Am I justified in that? Is that wrong? I'm trying to like wrestle with this idea of competitiveness with hatred because I don't hate them. Mm-hmm. I just want them to disappear.
0: Here's what I would say. Not as human, and, and then, I, you know, I might leave it to some of the other men who, who have been in the same position. But here's what I would say. There are, there, there's this, uh, this thing going around in culture right now, right? With, um, the, with politics and the left and the right. Where it's not enough for you to disagree with someone. You have to destroy their life right? So a person makes a comment on Twitter. Uh, we saw it with Laura Ingram a few weeks ago, right, where she said something against David Hogg, who was one of the kids at Parkland, and he tried to destroy her career, tried to get all of the advertisers to, 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 to shut down her program, right? And this is happening on both sides of the equation, where it's not enough to simply disagree with someone. It's not enough to simply say, I'm going to beat you out. It's, I'm going to destroy your life. And I would say that there's a big difference between saying, I have a Business and I am going to dominate you in the business sense, but you're, you're you. I don't want you to. I don't want you to starve. I don't want your kids to be destitute. I don't want your. You know. I don't want those things of you. I just. I just. you You know. We're, I'm we're in competition buy a here.
1: Couple McDonald's franchises and get out of business. Get out of my business. Is that okay?
0: That's okay. Absolutely. I starve or anything. But but if 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 that person who has been trying to put you out of business comes up and and needs compassion it would be expected by the word of God that you would show him compassion. Now, I'm not saying business compassion. I'm saying that you reach out a hand with to the man. With your newfound prophets. Right. Yeah. With your newfound prophets, you, help, you, you, you show compassion, right? Be
1: generous with them when they need
0: help. You, you, you treat him as... Your, your interaction with him in the business realm does not necessarily, should not translate over into how you treat him personally.
1: Sure, and it doesn't. I just, I, I have... <coughs> uh, okay, I understand.
0: Greg, do you have something to add there? No? Okay. That's fair. I get
1: it. So I like the term dismembering. <laughs> <laughs> it,
0: it's important. You know, one of the things that I've talked about with my people regularly at church is that um, one of the things that can happen when you're a conservative Christian or in any area where, where, where you have strong principles or strong beliefs, and then there becomes kind of this tribalistic us versus them. And especially when the other side, whether it be politics or whether it be whatever it might be, starts to actually come for blood. So Christianity, right, uh, is one of those things where in Syria, in Vietnam, in North Korea, that that when when they don't like what you have to say, they come for blood. Uh, they, they, in Syria, there's tremendous persecution. People's heads being chopped off for the faith, houses being burned down. Uh, just this last week, I read of a person uh, sitting in his room reading his Bible, and uh, some of the people from the neighborhood came in and threw acid on him—an acid attack, uh, acid all over his body—nearly died simply because he was reading a Bible and not a Koran. Um, and uh, Islam, you know, doesn't like that. So. Th- there's this idea that when, when they come for blood, it's very difficult to not hate them. But this is the call. That when I see the world around me that hates me for what I believe, when I'm not doing it, I'm not going out bombing, bombing abortion clinics or anything of the sort. But what I am doing is saying this is wrong. And when they come for blood, because I'm, I'm a thought criminal, I'm not to hate them. I need to continue to see them as my mission field. Not as my enemy.
1: Okay, Okay. are you allowed to defend yourself, even if it means the death of them versus the death of you?
0: Very debated issue in Christianity. I would say, for for the sake of the faith, no.
2: Hmm. Well, okay. Let
0: me try to. Greg and I don't necessarily see eye eye on this. Well, here's
2: the thing. So, if they're killing you specifically because you're a Christian. That is very different than if they're killing you just because they're evil.
0: Right. Yes, I agree.
2: But in either circumstance,
1: if you stand up and defend your own life or your family's life, and it ends in the casualty of the
2: other person coming at you. In, in the first scenario where they're, they're trying to kill you because you're a Christian, the argument would be that that is indeed martyrdom and you should die.
0: Jesus says that you should allow yourself to die. The reason
2: specifically they're killing you is because you're a Christian. If they're just evil and they want your stuff, or they want to do evil to your family, then I say, draw your sword.
0: And, and I, I, would agree. So one of the things, you know, I'm, I'm, am I'm I'm, I own firearms, whatnot. But one of the, I will not carry at church. And the reason, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, because I've got five or six other men in church that carry, uh, so I don't have to anyway, right? We're,
2: we're the most well-armed um, congregation. It's an eighty percent attendee rate. Yeah,
0: it's, it's true. We're we're doing pretty well in our church. Um, but the the fact is, and and, and again, the, the argument that I've had from the men in my church and such, I don't begrudge them carrying. Is a oh, better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it, right? Better to assess that this man is not coming for our faith, but he's just coming to be crazy and then to be able to take him out than than otherwise. But uh, it's a place that I will not carry because uh, the the, the Scriptures, Jesus says that we resist not evil. Do not resist evil. And uh, it's particularly within the context of those who would hate you for what you believe. To resist evil is to strip from myself heavenly rewards. So again, we have a heavenly versus a, a material perspective here. Which, which is more valuable, the eternal rewards or the material rewards of life? Even to the extent of my life, far more valuable to receive the eternal rewards. Now, is there an eternal reward for sitting there and, and, and doing nothing while somebody comes into your house and kills you for your stuff? No, there's no reward for that. Um, so I'm going to defend myself if someone steps into my house in the middle of the night. I'm going to defend myself. But if somebody wants to, ta- to to harm me for my faith, this is Jesus is not ambiguous about this. That you do not resist evil. That you that you,
1: so is that why you overcome don't care evil is with because good. Because your duty there and what you're doing is to preach your
2: faith. His presumption is someone that came to the church to do evil is doing evil because it's the church.
0: Right, it, it, that is a presumption I make. In
2: sense, you're ready to go. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and uh, the
2: presumption is, is I'll judge that through the crosshairs and then make a the call. Right. Uh, hopefully, the Holy Spirit's speaking loud and clear in a split That's that's right. That's what we will do. Because like the guy, like the guy in Texas that shot up those people, that Kelly guy, right? He's just an evil guy. Yeah. But he didn't yeah. target the church because it was a church. He targeted because he knew that's where the people that he wanted to harm would be. Yep. Yeah. Very big difference.
0: Exactly. And so in that sort of a situation, I don't know of course. You don't
2: know if the person it's it's coming into,
1: to right. is coming in to mow down Christians, right? it's coming to mow down people. You just don't
0: know. Right. But I will. I would. I, I will. I'm gonna. I will personally, and this is my personal decision, and I do not begrudge anyone. But I am personally, I, I would personally err on the side of martyrdom, just because that's just the way I think. Personally, now I, again, I do not begrudge anyone in the church that carries a firearm and uses it in a situation so where they deem it necessary. The
1: opportunity though, so. <laughs> With your congregation. No, I would no. This no martyrdom going to
0: happen. I mean, unless the guy, unless the guy gets me before anyone turns around, uh, I, I think I'll be okay in our particular <laughs> congregation.
2: <laughs> there, there, was a, there was a surreal day once where a police officer came in. Right? Remember that? Mm-hmm. I was, when bet, it yeah. was like, what exactly is this guy here to do?
0: There was also a day where um, a guy came in, sat in the back, never seen him before, wearing a suit, took a bunch of pictures, and then left. And after that week, I, I told a couple of the men, hey, this guy just came in, took pictures, and left. Keep your eye out, because I don't know why anyone would do that. I don't know if he was from the, the newspaper, you know, recording something. I don't know. Uh, pictures on, like, a phone? No, a phone? like, he had a camera, like a camera. He came in, he, he sat down in the back, he took some pictures, he walked, he got up, and he left. Um, that was maybe a year, a year and a half ago. So, you know, weird stuff. But, um, but anyway... At the same time, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The whole point of Jesus hanging on that cross was that the people that were that put him there, he is dying to bear their sin, right? He was dying to bear the sin of the very people that put him on the cross. And Jesus is our example that we should follow in his steps. The very fact that Jesus went to the cross is what the Bible says is the root, the foundation of why The Father glorified him in heaven.
1: I have another question. Sorry, if I ask too many questions, you can tell me to stop. But when we talk about hate, Mm -hmm. right, it's one thing to hate a person, right, or a family or whatever. But what about like if you hate, uh, you know, you hate abortion or Mm -hmm. you hate losing? You, you know, is 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 this type of hate a is this bad? Well, we already talked about godly
0: hate, right? Abortion would be godly hate, because we hate what God hates, and God hates the, the, the death of innocent life. Hate losing might be a pride issue. If it's because of my pride I cannot lose, then at the point that pride gets involved and it's about my pride, then it could become now, now the idea of "I don't mind losing is not just a pride issue, right? It's good to, it's good to win, it's good to be excellent. It's good to want excellence. I hate being late. I hate being late. I feel like I'm wasting other people's time. I feel like it's a bad representative of the Lord Jesus Christ when I am not regarding other people's time. Um, is there a pride issue there? Well, if there is, then that's where things can start to go wrong. The hatred itself... Any virtue can become a vice. We're, we're not here to, to say... And this is actually what, what we're presenting, right? That hatred can go both ways. Love can go both ways. Sorrow can go both ways. You can have virtuous and non-virtuous. So what do we do? We take these emotions and we filter it through the Word of God. We filter it through the Word of God. Am I hating something because I'm proud? I'm selfish? I'm arrogant? I'm uh, bitter? I'm, I'm resentful? I'm unforgiving? If that's the reason why I hate something, then it's sin. But if I hate something because it's not up to uh, excellence, it's, um, it's something that, that is clearly sinful, it is whatever it might be, then it's not because it is reflecting virtue and, and, and God's character. Now,
1: but To me, there's like a gray line, there, like a blurry line, because, if, for example, in, in my work, if you, if you go against a competitor and you lose the bid or whatever, right? I hate that. Mm-hmm. It, 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 that's, not, that's not because of my pride. It's because our team didn't get to work, right? Yep. It really makes me mad. I'm not mad at the client. I'm, not, I'm just mad that it happened. So is that, is that <laughs> sinful or is that not?
0: No, I'd say no, um, but again, the Bible says whatsoever is not a faith is sin. I can't give you, the Bible is not a checklist sort of a thing. I mean, the Old Testament was kind of a checklist sort of a thing, but living the Christian life is not a checklist sort of a thing. Living the Christian life is, we walk by faith, we, we live in the Spirit, this is what we do. So, again... If it's not, if, if, if you can search your own heart at that time where you lose that, that, you know, opportunity and there's not pride, there's not selfishness, these things are not in your heart. It is simply a desire for you, you know, it, in every virtuous way to get work and these sorts of things and you don't like losing that, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and, and yet, you need to be careful, again, because if the anger that you feel at that moment, which again can, can be okay in and of itself, but if that rolls over to you go home, you kick the dog, you yell at your wife, now you've sinned, right? Because now that anger of the day has rolled over into taking it out on others and expressing that anger in a, in a, in a way that is absolutely inappropriate. And, and so what can even start out as right can roll into wrong if we don't have control and if we're not walking in the spirit. So is there a gray area? Absolutely. A lot of life, and what I, what I mean by that is, what I mean by gray areas is that it's not a gray area to God. God knows it's black and white. God, God sees it all, but we, we're not God. So there is this whole chunk of life where in that realm we are walking by faith. We even talked about, when we talked about music a couple weeks ago, there is that realm there where we are walking by faith where there is some gray areas there where we're making our own decisions and it might even be right for one person and wrong for another, but we have to do what is right by faith and we have to walk by faith and do what we believe pleases God and then if more information comes up, we need to set aside our pride and we need to assess the information as it, as it comes and then we need to make... Renew our decisions and walk in the spirit and, and whether it be the, the issue of self defense which is something i 'm constantly reevaluating because I don't like the idea of not not um, defending myself, but there's a certain line that I just in my conscience cannot cross right now, and that line has moved a little bit this way and that way over time as i 've thought and prayed and whatnot and and there was a point where I, I um, said, "Well, should I just not?" carry it all. And then there was a point where, well, maybe I should just carry all the time. And, and then I kind of found a place where my conscience was comfortable. And, and as long as you're praying and you're walking in the Spirit, this is what the Christian life is. And this is why, in some ways, in many ways, the Christian life is much more difficult than a checklist. It's, it's easier and more difficult at the same time. It's easier in this, that when I'm walking in the Spirit, the decisions are, are made for me. Right I'm just along for the ride and the spirit's telling me what to do. It's more difficult because that means I have to stay in the spirit. If I have a checklist, if I'm good with God just by reading my Bible and praying and going to church, I can do all of that and still do whatever you know whatever's I don't have to check my heart. I'm just checking my actions. But the Christian life is not about checking my actions. It's about checking my heart. It's about my heart being in the right place with God, and then my actions are an overflow of the fact that my heart is in the right place with God. And so that makes it simpler, but also sometimes more difficult because that means I can't fake it. I can fake it with everyone around me. I can go to church and I can pretend and I can read my Bible and pretend and I can do all of these things and I can even fake myself, but the person I cannot fool is God. He knows what's in my heart. He knows why I'm making the decisions I'm making. I can not I can justify things with myself. I can explain things away to myself. I can explain things away to my pastor. I can explain things away to people, but God is not going to be fooled. He can't be fooled. And so we, b- it, it, we do ourselves a great disservice if we live hypocritically. Because while we're fooling everyone else, we're also losing treasure in heaven because God's not being fooled. And where it really matters is the one place where we're, where, where we're, we're losing. Everywhere else we might be winning. But where it really matters, we're losing. And this is that faith perspective. We've got we've to change our mindset to where the, things, the decisions we make are not necessarily the decisions that are most practical or most expedient for the moment, but the ones that are, are most in line with the principles of faith. Even if that means making the difficult decisions. And that's the essence of the Christian life. So as we continue to talk about ungodly emotions, ungodly <coughs> happiness, if I can put it that way. Um, Solomon talks about this in Ecclesiastes. He was a wise man, and in his wisdom he said, these are things that you should not do. You should be temperate. You should not pursue after all of these lusts. And he said, but I, I don't, I, I'm wondering if that's actually true. So he said he was going to prove wisdom. He was going to test wisdom to see if the wisdom that God had given to him was valid. And so he went and he pursued alcohol, and he got himself... Uh, you know, just just crazy drunk, and he pursued women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, right? So he had 900 women in his harem. He pursued building projects. He anything that came to his mind to build, he built it. Monuments, everything. He pursued musicians. He had the greatest musicians in the world live in his court. He pursued um, uh, fame, uh, becoming world renowned. He pursued uh, uh, everything that that the heart could want, and at the end of it. So, this is what he says here. He says, I sought, uh, verse 3 I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly till I might see w- what was that good for the sons of men, what makes men happy, and can it actually satisfy them? Verse 4 I made me great works, I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards. Verse 5, I made me gardens and orchards, I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit. I made me pools of water, to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, had servants born in my house. Also I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered also silver and gold. He made a lot of money and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces, all of the unique things. He went around the world finding unique treasures. I gat me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatsoever mine eye desired I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor, Then I looked on all the works that my hand had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. He said, at the end of the day, outside of God, it's all emptiness. So he sought for all the human happiness, and it didn't bring him joy, contentment. This idea is the same idea when Jesus talked to the woman at the well in John 4, and he told the woman at the well that he asked her for water and she said, why are you talking to me? And He said, well, if you knew who I was, you'd ask of me and I'd give you a well inside of you springing up to eternal life so that you'd never thirst again. And she said, give me this water. And he said, well, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And what he was doing there, what Jesus was doing there is he was highlighting to her that she was seeking to fulfill this longing, this, this hole in her life, this longing and desire for fulfillment and for purpose in men. Going from man to man to man to man. And she'd go to one man and she'd be happy and then she'd get thirsty again. She'd get rid of him and she'd go to the next guy. She'd get thirsty again. And she'd go from thing to thing to thing, discontent to discontent to discontent, saying, if only I had that next thing, I'd be truly happy. Children do this, right? They want something for Christmas and they say, Dad, if you give me that for Christmas, I'll never ask for anything again. And we know through wisdom that you give it a month, three weeks, maybe one week, and they're, they're bored, right? They're ready for the next thing. They'll be asking for something again next Christmas, no doubt. But in their heart, they truly feel as though that is the longing of my heart and it can bring contentment, but things don't buy happiness, Things just can't buy happiness. So this is why there's that line for the iPhone when a new one comes out every time. And the people go and they, they drop their $1,000 on their new iPhone and they're yay, yeah 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 yeah, and, and it satisfies and then six months down the road they're looking for the next one. They're waiting, they can't wait for the next iPhone to come out. Why? Do they really? Well, no, but they're, they're looking for something to satisfy a craving. And they're looking for something to, to, to give them the next shot of joy. This happens in the Christian life too. People go from conference to conference and they go to their christian conference and it 's like they 're on an emotional high and then they come down off of it and they go real low and then they 're living in this low until the next conference right this is This is happiness that 's driving us up, and then when happiness isn 't there we 're driven down and we are on an emotional roller coaster, and there 's no constancy there 's no joy because we 're seeking our fulfillment in the things of this life, even in the things of virtue. See, even seeking your fulfillment in in the things that that are good, in serving others and whatnot, it's still, you have to get the shot in the arm again and again and again. You have to refill the tank again and again and again. Now, that being said, there are things in this life that are naturally a blessing. It's more blessed to give than to receive. A person serves others. He gives of his money. Why is it that most rich men have foundations where they give away a bunch of their money? Because they've realized, as they've gotten more rich, that that money has just not bought them happiness. Now what makes them happy? What makes them happy is seeing the smiling faces of those that they're helping. That's really what makes them happy. That's where they find some level of contentment. That's how they, that's how they, they, they are able to continue to function because money just didn't do it for them and everything that money can buy. This is um, ungodly happiness. I'm not saying that it's wrong to be happy over things. But what I'm saying is when we find our fulfillment and our desire in those things... We are, we are replacing true contentment with the things that simply cannot satisfy. And that's where we go wrong. Questions or thoughts on that before we move on to misguided concepts of love? Love. Um, love is, is a big problem today in understanding. Um, Misguided concepts of love today. One is lust. I give you a couple of warnings in Proverbs 5 about what I call the willful woman or the willing woman. uh, What's described in Proverbs 5 is effectively, um, well, Proverbs 6.26 calls her a whorish woman. Um, Solomon writes, and remember Solomon had 900 women in his harem so he probably knew what he was talking about here. For the lips of a strange woman drop as in an honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on hell. Lest thou shouldst ponder the path of life, her ways are movable, that thou canst not know them. Hear me now, therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way from her, far from her, excuse me, and come not nigh to the door of her house. Lest thou give thine honor unto others and thy years unto the cruel, lest strangers be filled with thy wealth. And thy labors be in the house of the stranger. And thou mourn at the last when thy flesh and thy body are consumed. And say, how have I hated instruction and my heart despised reproof. There's always regret. There's always regret. And have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to to them that instructed me. I was almost in all evil in the midst of the congregation and assembly. Drink waters out of thine own cistern. Running waters out of thy own well. The idea there is stick to the woman that God has given you. Proverbs 6.26-29 For by means of a whorish woman a man is brought to a piece of bread and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? So he that goeth into his neighbor's wife whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. There are consequences. And lust uh, and love are not the same thing. The emotional feelings that come over you when you connect with someone is not love in the purest sense. It is not love in the purest sense. Uh, I, I talk to people and uh, at the jail and whatnot, and they say, um, "But I love her. But I love him, and he loves me." And uh, she's talking about a man who, um, every time they get together, they end up doing drugs together and uh, end up doing something they regret, and then she ends up in jail and he ends up in jail too, or he's in prison, and, but he loves me and. you sit there and you say, well, what's your definition of love? Is your definition of love that they'll buy crack next time for you? Is that love? Well, no. Love is doing what is best for them, right? Love is doing what is best for them. And so we have this distorted, humans have this incredible capacity to distort the concept of love to where we see love through the filter of what we perceive rather than what is objectively true. And what is objectively true is that love is doing what is best for a person. Which means if you are doing that which harms them, even if it's something that they want, that's not a manifestation of true love. Kindness is another way that we define love today. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, however, says, Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So you say, hey, why don't you tell so and so that they're doing wrong? Well, because I love them too much it doesn't compute. That's not it. Love is when you, if, if, if a person is, is walking toward the edge of a cliff and they don't see the cliff coming, you don't say, well, I'm not going to tell them that there's a cliff there because I love them too much and I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to make them feel bad about themselves that they didn't see the cliff. I love them too much for that. No, if you truly love them, you're going to yank them away from that cliff edge because you love them. Like I said with the child. The child's reaching out to touch a burner and you're going to smack that hand. Yes, they're not going to like that you smacked their hand, but you chose the better part. You saved them from deeper damage, from bigger problems. We do this with our children all the time. Our children, we make a decision. No, you may not go there. No, you may not have that. And they say, well, you don't love me. Actually, honey, I'm doing this because of how much I love you. I love you too much to let you do that, to let you go there, to let you be with those people. I love you too much to just let you do your own thing without somebody stepping up and saying, stop, this is not right. This is not what you should be doing. Feelings. We've already talked a little bit about feelings. Feelings is another deceitful uh, idea of the heart. The compulsions of the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Do you know that you can justify, the human capacity to justify self is just through the roof. The human capacity of self-deception. Is amazing. If you want something, you can justify anything. If you want something, you can justify anything because the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately wicked. In its natural state, our hearts are prone to wickedness, prone to evil. Proverbs sixteen two. All the ways of men are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. Proverbs twenty one two. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. This is where love has to become an objective measure. Where there's right, there's wrong, there's best, and there's not best, and I'm going to pursue that which is best, objectively right for the ones that I love. I'm going to pursue that which is objectively best for my love for God and for my love for others. If I truly love God, then I'm going to do what is right by Him. If I truly love my wife, I'm going to do what is right by her. It doesn't mean I'm always going to make her happy. It doesn't mean I'm always going to fulfill her wants. It means I'm going to do what is best for her. Because that is what true love is. But, uh, you know, we're we're growing up now in a society, uh, you know, kind of the the, the Disney generation that sees love as entirely based upon emotions, based upon feelings. And if you allow your feelings to dictate you, then number one, you're going to be all over the board. Number two, you're going to find yourself in a lot of bad places. We, can't, we, we, we cannot be driven by feelings. And, and unfortunately, we're in a very uh, emotive society. We'll call it an effeminate society. It's a society that, for the past several generations, has uh, grown up in a public school system dominated by all women, taught by all women, uh, uh, and specifically designed for women. Right? That's why girls do significantly better statistically than boys in school, even though boys statistically do significantly better in ACT and, a- and SAT scores. Why? because school is geared toward the way women learn, the way women think, because schools are run by women. And so we've created generations of people that are dr- run by emotions. Driven by emotions. You see it in politics. You see it in culture. You see it in, in every element of our society. We are a society that's driven by emotion. Not by fact, not by, not by reason, but by emotion. And when we are driven by emotion, there is nothing that we cannot justify. There's nothing that cannot be justified when a society is driven by emotion. And that's where we're headed. And it's going to... We're already there. Well, we're there, but it's going to get much worse. Where in the public
2: sphere does anybody ask what you think about something? It's how you feel about it. Or I take offense to this. I feel this way.
0: And then we have to bind ourselves to other people's offenses, right? And we have to bind ourselves to other people's feelings. This is the whole politically correct movement, identity politics movement, the idea that because somebody feels something, that means I'm bound to their feelings. I mean, unless their feelings are mm-hmm. not my feelings, then... The school
1: system's gone that direction. I mean, is it, is it, the, is it the pay, the educate, what, Like, Why is education so female? Why is it owned by women now?
0: Well, there's several things there. Number one, the education system was was infiltrated by evil men uh, 150 years ago. John Dewey, who's the father of modern uh, education, was a tremendously evil man. Uh, his, his design was that the family is an evil institution that it needs to be destroyed, and that the st- he's a communist. So the state needs to run everything. The family needs to be destroyed, and um, if I can say it this way, characteristically women are easier to manipulate?
2: Well, to deceive.
0: To deceive. Yes.
2: It is evidence going all the way back to the garden.
0: All the way back to the garden. So if women are easier to deceive and manipulate, then who better to have control over this institution than women who you can then bring along and, and manipulate in the way that you would have them to go. And this if is
2: something becomes more <laughs> feminized. It's less and less attractive for men to do it. That, that too. I suppose.
0: Now that 's not to say women are inferior it 's just that God has made them different, right And because God has made them differently, they have different capacities, different strengths. They excel in certain areas, uh, not in other areas. But everything has been turned on its head. The Bible says that it 's the responsibility of the man to train up his children, and uh, we are also in a society that particularly since the Cultural Revolution, families have been turned uh, on, on you know upside down. Uh, the, the black community has a sixty percent single mother rate in their communities which is why black crime is so much significantly higher than others Uh, white community is not getting uh, is is, is going that direction as well the breakdown of the family means there's no male influences means things are getting much much worse and it's it's just compounding so and as that happens children especially our our young men are either gonna feel completely disenfranchised and then they become nutcases uh, who want to tear down everything or they become driven by the same emotions that they've learned their entire lives, because they've had no one but women te- well, raising them. Well,
2: what the they do is they seek satisfaction in a virtual way, right? Like video games. Right. Totally play into that. Playstations. Absolutely. Auto, uh, 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 what is it? Achieve greatness. Oh, right. It's perfect. It just totally feeds it, because it, it's an outlet for the male to go to to. to, to pseudo-fulfillment. like why have
1: men become so weak? I look at all the guys in my cul-de-sac. Yeah, you know, I'm like I'm like one of the youngest ones, but I look at all the dads in the cul-de-sac. They're just a bunch of weak, wet noodles
2: all right, so driving in there. I have a theory on this, but we would have to pause the camera. Oh. <laughs> so I would be glad to share. He knows it. That's why he's laughing so hard. <laughs> okay. Should we, should we do that uh, maybe after the game, that after it's over? Fun.
0: Okay, we can do that. Or I can just shut off the camera, but we'll we'll just I'll ask now. we'll do it afterwards. But there are uh, um, have a debate. I have
2: the answer. The, but, but I think
0: I don't. as we consider the idea of why are men so weak though, um, one of the characteristics of a of a pagan society that has pursued evil is that they become effeminate. It's one of the things that the Bible says is evil, is effeminacy, is where men become more, where, where men become effeminate. And so it is the propensity and the tendency. Why is it in churches that w- women actually tend to, uh, all, all the way back to the curse, the Bible said that Eve would have a hard time submitting to her husband. It was a part of the curse. And uh, all, going all the way back to that, going all the way back to the curse, all the way back to the propensities, men actually, it takes character to lead. It takes character to lead. And um, men don't, while men are, are naturally born and, and designed to lead, there's also a natural propensity in men, just based upon how God has created us, to uh, not be, to not want to care that much. So you see in churches, as a church is dying, what you'll find is that mo- the church's majority women, women have the voice, women begin to lead. Uh, Even if women aren't the pastors, they're the ones that are driving the church. Women are are the only ones doing the worship. Women are doing this. Women are doing that. Well, women are nat they have a natural bent toward the spiritual. And so it's naturally more, it's naturally more, um, it's more natural for them to maintain kind of those ties to spirituality when man would just say, okay, I'm done with this. And uh, then the women will begin to step up and take those roles where the men will begin to fade out. And it's one of the marks of a church that's dying where there's no male leadership. And it's like that in every element of society where uh, as you begin to see um, women take over, basically men are risk takers. Women are not, right? Men are risk takers. Women are not. Women are not naturally risk takers. So whenever you see something in society that is actually forging ahead, it's because men are doing it you you've got Elon Musk who's shooting cars into space and all of these things because he's a risk taker because uh, with with the government's money of course but you know uh, they, they are they're they're taking risks My money. <laughs> he i tell you that that that, that guy he uh, he's sure scammed the american public <laughs> the way he, the way he rolled things out but um but anyway but but men are risk takers when you see women begin to dominate an industry that means that that in- industry is tapped out and all that's left is for women to come in and run it because they're not going to take the risks, they're not going to push the industry forward. And so it's really interesting as you start to see industries that are, are beginning to roll over into women leadership, you know that, that they're kind of tapped out. Now, there's an exception to every rule. There's always going to be that woman who...
2: So the way I would say it is, there's a standard normal distribution of bell curve in certain right. genders. The, the women are skewed towards being less risk-taking and the men towards more risk-taking. But the details of the two probably cross. So the most yes. risk-taking women are more risk-taking than the least risk-taking men. Does that make sense? Yes. I can draw the graph if you like graphs.
0: Yes. So the idea.
2: So, people yep. say there are exceptions to the rule. There's the statistical foundation for why there are these quote-unquote exceptions.
0: Right. Right. So there are. There's a contingency of women who are who are exceptionally risk-taking. And still
2: not as, the, as an equivalent contingency. That same minority of the male population is far more reasonable.
0: Absolutely. And it's like that on the other end, there are men that, that are very good caretakers and whatnot, and, but the majority will not be that way. And so you'll have in that same bell curve, there are men who will be better t- caretakers than the women who are less right. as they cross, but that's, that's going to be the exception rather than the rule. It's going to be the statistical less likelihood that men are going to be the good caretakers, the ones that are more capable at home whereas the woman, you know, is, is more capable um,
2: at... More it, emotionally empathetic. And exactly. Higher EQ, you know, that kind of thing. Our solution to an injury, suck it up. Right. There's... Oh,
0: hug and, you yeah. know, hold oh, and yeah. coddle and
2: walk them walk across the hall at night. And the Spartans and gave the kids to the men at age seven. It's
0: Absolutely. Like,
2: the kid is still a baby. Let's stop coddling and when he gets hurt. I still don't see blood. There's no bones disfigured. Get back in
1: the game. That's how it is. I put my five-year-old boy in the karate, and that is generally very male leadership-driven. And I've been watching it, and it is really cool to see him making him say yes, sir. And I mean, super cool. Very, you know, I mean, for the most part, very male-driven. Yeah, fighting. Absolutely, it's it's
0: it's, it's a great thing. And, and boys need that, right? Which is, which is important. And this is why. Well, cause b- this is why society is where it is. Because uh, that has been, it, it's, it's now looked down upon. Aggression, male aggression, uh, male leadership. You know, Boy Scouts just changed their name, what was it, yesterday or today, to Scouts, right? Scout, Scouts BSA. So there's no Boy Scouts anymore. Um, and yeah, that they're admitting. They,
2: they, they sold out a long time. Ago. Yeah. They, they, they changed the name to, of to Scouts. scouts. Yeah. It's more appropriate, now.
0: So, So now the Boy Scouts is for boys what and mean, girls. What are you anybody?
2: So no more Girl Scouts than Boy Scouts.
0: No, there is still Girl Scouts, and the Girl Scouts are really angry that the Boy Scouts are now trying to pull from the Girl Scouts, from girls. But what it is is. So but the interesting thing is they said, okay. They
2: tell you that any of the Scouts is the cookies. I mean, let's
0: be honest. But what they've said now is that, generally speaking, it's still going to be separated. Like, each troop is going to be separated, male and female. But here's the thing. The women are now receiving the same merit badges as the men. Now, it used to be, in Girl Scouts, the merit badges were cooking, sewing, maternal things, right? And then the Boy Scouts are, can you light a fire? Can you shoot an arrow? Can you whittle something with your knife? You know, can you, can you patch up a, a, a gaping wound? Real stuff, right? And And so now the girls are going to be Lighting fires and shooting arrows and patching up gaping wounds, and they're going to be taught to be it's like the they're 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 trying to teach. They're reversing roles, which is exactly what Isaiah says. Cursed are they that call evil good and good evil, and that that um, uh, you know that that turn everything on its head. So this is again, it's a mark of a pagan society. It's a mark of a society that recognizes God's design and says, whatever God has designed, we're going to do the opposite because it's rebellion. It's rebellion. I went
1: to an event center the other day, and I was stopped at the door, and they said, "You can't go in." I said, "What do you mean I can't go in?" And they said, um, "You're a man." And I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> And they said, um, this space is only for uh, female and non-gender binary, whatever the hell that means. Uh, So you're not allowed in. And I said, well, can you tell me what that means? Hey, at least you didn't get grouped as gender binary.
0: You should have said, why are you assuming upon my gender?
2: But she
1: she said either if you're a man and you identify as a woman, you're allowed in. If you're a woman... And you have the women parts, but you identify as a man. You're still allowed in. So, meaning, if you're a man that identifies as a man, you are not allowed in. I was like, this. That I was invited to host it, <laughs> and, and it turns out that the lady at the front desk didn't know that it was being opened up for everybody, oh. and she had no idea. And she was trying to enforce. She it. was of the demographic that hated people like me that's yes, like, that's in, exactly. in just about every single aspect. Yep. And it was. It was. It was like. I felt I felt hate <laughs> is <what> I felt. <laughs> discrimination oh I'm <it's> so mad <laughs> okay A-
0: and this is the and way the society is going and, <laughs> and we should we we should recognize that this is this is nothing that we, we should not expect as the society paganizes. The more it rejects God, this is where every society goes. This is not new. This is not the first time in history this has happened. Th- there's nothing new under the sun. This is what happens when a society rejects truth, when a society rejects the standard, when a society rejects God. And all the way back to Adam and Eve, when they, when they said, we, when, when, when Adam partook of the fruit because he wanted to be like God, All the way back then, this was the exact same thing that's happening. You have something to say, Greg?
2: Well, this kind of would kick up a whole other discussion, but I think to some degree, we are prone to this because we were a Christian nation. So, for example, part of the curse is that men would rule over women harshly in a very chismo-dominant sort of way. I think that's actually the default position for manhood because if you look all over the globe, in most cultures, that's how it's run. Right. The men will beat the women and the women are chattel. In our culture, we said that's not appropriate. Right. And so we gave ground and the logic of why they should be treated with more respect created a situation in which that foothold could then be eroded. Because they never would have gotten authority in a in a. Culture like in Africa or in the Amazon or you know anywhere, right. and also communication tools. The, like the very few matriarchal societies crumble like immediately. Yep. But it, wouldn't you agree though that like
1: um, social media and a lot of the communication tools available today are are enabling these groups? on a macro scale to come together, even though they're not physically
2: in the same no, area? No, 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 because in an in indigenous culture, when the women first asked for treatment, you know, a certain way starting in the late 1800s, the men would have beat them into submission, literally. I mean, I'm just saying, that's, that's the default position of, of not good masculinity, but right. that's, that's the root coming from the curse. You think that if, what would happens when the, the, the Burkawares say they want equality?
0: Right, and they get, beat and they get beaten and lashed.
2: They, they, they don't get what they want, right? The reason they got in here is that they said, well, we want to be treated well. And we said, well, yeah, that's reasonable. The book says to do that, right? And then it progressed from there. And then right. if we stopped the camera. I can take us from that to how it
0: and, and it did progress from, and, and again, it, 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 there's the balance of the Christian life that says women are not property, women are to be valued, but that women are not to be valued to the extent to where we abandon the principles. And once the, and, and, and so the Christian life, as we said already kind of when we were talking about the gray areas, uh, and, and then a society that's built on Christian principles is walking a very fine line where you are allowing for things that would not be normal in, in a society, so you you think of like Russia, and Russia is a is a um, totalitarian, despotic um, regime there with with Vladimir Putin, and yet uh, they have extremely strict laws against homosexuality because it breaks down the family, and extre- So so they've identified some things in a in a in a ne- in a negative way. They come to truth, whereas uh, in in our society we recognize well all humans have dignity and then it was brought emotively through emotions into sin on the other end. Um, same with women's rights. The idea of we treat women with respect and dignity is a very good thing, but then when we say because we're treating women with respect and dignity, it rolls over into what feminism is it's today.
2: Exactly.
0: As the society rejected God more and more. And you're exactly right about that, um, Greg, as far as mm-hmm. where we got to where we are today in the Western world. So the overriding principle, as we kind of get back to this, um, we haven't even hit anger or forgiveness yet. (laughs) Um, Emotional responses are the natural extension of the image of God and man. They can be good or bad. Every virtue can become a vice. It is how we, I lost Tom. It, it, It is what we do with the emotion that will dictate whether or not it's right or wrong, whether or not it's virtuous or not. So anger. Righteous anger. Nehemiah 13. In Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah was a leader in Israel after they came back from Babylon. And uh, he went away for a while. He was a governor. And then he had to go back and he had to report to Babylon about what he'd done. So he goes away for a couple of years. He comes back and he finds out that, that the nation had begun to slide. And so you read a description of what he did when he found out that that the nation had begun to disobey the Lord. Uh, The Bible says, In those days also I saw the Jews had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab, and their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them, and cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, "Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, or for yourself. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? He married women from all sorts of nations, and it perverted the people. Yet among many nations was there no king like him, who was beloved of God, and God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives? And one of the sons of Joidah, the son of Elishib, this high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus cleansed I from them from all strangers and appointed the wards of the priests and of the Levites, everyone in his business, and for the wood of the offering, at times appointed and for firstfruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. So we have here a situation where Nehemiah was literally like tearing people's hair out and, and beating them as he, as he sought to to bring about what needed to be done to restore the people to purity. Now, we're not tribalistic today. We're not going to say, hey, you married from this, you know, you married into this culture and it's, it's not righteous indignation for you to tear their hair out and to beat them. But what Nehemiah was doing there is he said, we are under a covenant. The Jews are under a covenant. You have breached the covenant and here we're going to be in the same place we were that caused us to go into 70 years of captivity. And in his anger, he did something about it. And that was righteous anger. He said, remember me for good, God, in this circumstance. So what does the Bible teach us about anger? The Bible teaches us that we're to have long fuses and small explosions. Psalm 30, verses 5 and 6. Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of His, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. For His, in, his anger endureth but a moment in His favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Psalm 103 verse 8 The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. Proverbs fifteen eighteen A wrathful man stirreth up strife, but he that is slow to anger appeaseth strife. Um, Proverbs sixteen thirty two He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. Proverbs nineteen eleven The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. Galatians five twenty two. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, long suffering. That's the one I'm looking for there. Gentleness, goodness, faith. Yes, sir. All
1: right. So, the half blood is known for short fuses. Mm-hmm. So, is that, you know, are we born as sinful people? Or is it something I've, I've definitely matured, right? And mm-hmm. controlled and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, it's still there. Mm-hmm. Right? So, that's an imperfect perfection in my personality. Yep. So, when it comes to anger, I am quick to anger, even though that it's been something I've had to work on for 41 years of my life. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to that aspect, because some people are patient, some people aren't. That's right. So I
2: guess.
0: Yes, it's still said.
1: The heart is, yeah, the heart's like saying, don't do it. Yep, 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 yep. yep, yep but it, you know, the explosion is going to happen at some point.
0: Well, it doesn't have to. And that's the thing. We all have propensities. So when we talk about um, that there are generational sins passed down from father to to, to son. And sometimes we step into certain sins that then get passed down. Generational sin is a thing. The Bible talks about um, God visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the sons to the third and fourth generation. That doesn't mean he's punishing the son for the father's sin. It means that the sin it carries over from generation to generation. As I set an example, Greg doesn't agree with me, I see.
2: Well, they don't allow bastards in the temple for ten generations, so that would mean that the punishment is being, or there is some consequence carried out through
0: For certain actions, yes, but, but it's not, what, what, what I'm saying is, yes, there can be consequences for sins in that way, but there is also a generational idea where sins carry over. Ezekiel says that the, the child will not be punished for his father's sin. That doesn't mean that there's not consequences. So if my father um, is, a, 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 um, is a... I'm trying to think of a good example here. Uh, m- well, my, my father's choices affect me, right? So, uh, my father's a bum, he doesn't he doesn't work, whatever, now I'm impoverished. I'm impoverished because of him. I don't get a good education because of him. I, I get into a life of crime. Now, I choose to get into that life of crime, but it does fall back upon the fact that I was in a situation, maybe even my parents introduced me to it. Uh, so there's some people in the jail that the first time that they got into drugs, it was with their parents. Their parents were the ones that introduced them to drugs. Right? And so you have this idea. Is it still their choices? Yes. Are they still making choices? Yes, they are. But at the same time, there are things that can put you on a really bad foot, right? Um, there are the bastard sons that cannot enter the temple for a certain number of generations. All of Moab. All of um, certain nations were not allowed in because of their heritage, because of the choices of their fathers. Even Israel, and, and those are natural choices, but this is not God punishing them. This is God extending the consequences. Even when David's son died for the sin with Bathsheba, this was not God punishing the son. This was God affecting his righteousness, and God could not in his righteousness allow this son to live, because by allowing the son to live, it would cause the nations that were around them to uh, it would cause the the entire testimony of the nation and the nations around them to scorn the name of God. So God took the child as an extension of his righteousness uh, as a, and a consequence for the things that were taken. It was not a punishment on the child. It was more or less, as it were, a punishment on David. It was a natural consequence of his sinful choices. Um, but there are things such as generational sins where we struggle with certain sins because of our parents and their parents and whatnot because of our propensity, because of our personalities. Um, We could say the same about not just anger but there are certain people that that are tempted to lie and others aren't. There are certain people that are just liars. There are certain people that 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 are tempted to steal where others just aren't. There are certain people that have a tendency toward homosexuality and others do not. But they're all the same thing. Just because I have a tendency toward sin does not make the sin right or does not mean that because I'm born with it, it's okay. It's still sin. And in the Spirit, God has given, even the person that has a propensity toward a sin, every ability to overcome it. So there is no excuse. Now there's a reason, right? There's a reason why in a room full of people, you might blow up before I would. But there, that doesn't mean that there's an excuse for you ever to do so. It means that you need to be walking in the Spirit and find the virtuous outlet in Christ for that anger before it becomes something that ends up exploding, right? My fuse is, is longer, but I have, I have struggles in other areas. Some people struggle in certain areas and other people don't struggle in those areas and that's just kind of the way it is. But sin is still sin. And what the, what the Word of God tells us is that we are to be slow to anger. Greg had mentioned, what was it, two weeks ago when we were talking about alcohol um, the fact that because Greg does nothing halfway, he stays away from alcohol, right? And this is this is a propensity. And so Greg, knowing who he is, he has he has navigated his life in such a way as to avoid certain things because he does not want to place himself in a position where he is going to roll into something that is not virtuous through his natural tendencies and propensities. That means that if you have a short fuse, you have you might have to change your lifestyle a little bit, divert certain things in your life in order to put fences up, uh, speed bumps in the fuse process. Now, that doesn't mean there's not going to be a time where something's going to come up. You might blow a f- you know, your, your fuse might be short, you might blow up, you have to repent, you have to ask for forgiveness, those sorts of things are going to happen. Eventually, the Spirit of God is able to stop that at the door, you see it coming, you know what's going to come, and you cut it off. None of us is perfect, we're all working with things in our lives.
2: Right? Right. There's still might
1: that's my, when
0: you mentioned, before you said fence, am like, that's just another fence example, right? It is. Yeah, it's where, there, that's an area of your life where the fence is going to have to be farther back, right? Where you're going to have to put things in in the way so that you can deal with what would make you angry before it makes you angry. Um, and you help your children, you communicate you know, with your children on that. These are the things that make dad angry, dad struggles with getting angry, so in order, so these are the rules we have in place so that there are layers before I get angry and these are the expectations so that I don't have to get angry. One of the big problems with parents is that uh, we don't discipline until we get angry. And so we let things build up and we don't take care of them right away and then they build and they build and they build and they build and then we overflow. And then the child has a reason to get angry at me because I didn't punish them the first three times they did it but I did on the fourth and now I'm inconsistent and instead of them learning the lesson from the punishment all they are doing is they're building up resentment against the punishment in me because they can now, the human heart is deceitful, right? So now they have a cause within their heart to divert the focus off of their sin and their wrong onto mom and dad's sin and mom and dad's wrong. And children subconsciously even try to do this. They will actually do things that will attempt to egg you on once they know that they've done wrong so that you will respond negatively so that then they can turn the tables on you and say you are angry. You did this wrong. And then they can take the pressure off of themselves. Adults actually do this all the time, too.
2: Absolutely. They don't A- want to provoke that dog. Right, Ab? Eh? Right. Well,
0: and, and, and you're right. It, it's, it's true among others, uh, perhaps even more so than, than the angry people. But the idea is so what do I do? Well, I say, OK, I'm not going to get angry, which means I've got to deal with offenses first time. Before I'm angry at it, when it, when I can be objective over it, and if you don't do that, that's your fault, because now you are the one that hasn't dealt with anger, that has has not dealt with the situation before it rolls over into anger, if that makes sense. Whew. Okay. Warnings against anger. Proverbs 14:17. He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly, and a man of wicked devices is hated. My favorite. Proverbs 21, 19. It is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. This is a really important point for our young people to understand. She's hey, not hey, going to change hey, when you get married.
2: married Read that one five times.
0: If she, if, she, if she is a contentious woman, if she's an angry woman, stay away from her. You know, it's, one it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> d- d- dwell in the wilderness, man.
1: Or, or move to the fire. My yeah. wife can get really angry.
0: Well, then, then it's, your, it's incumbent upon you as a spiritual leader in your home to begin to work with her on that. All
2: right. Well, well, right. I'll put that on list. That's right. <laughs> I got five trips
1: of candy. You know. <laughs> Just put me
0: back for all of That's right. Is it's it's that the farthest corner of the housetop you can find, right? Uh, Proverbs 22, four, 24, 25. Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. We all know what it's like to be a friend of someone who is impulsive and angry, and it's not a good thing. I mean, even if you haven't experienced it, you've seen it. Proverbs 25, 23, and 24. The north wind driveth away rain, so doth an angry countenance a backbiting tongue. It is better to dwell on the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. Proverbs 29, 22. No house can be big enough for a brawling woman. Uh, an angry man stirreth up strife, and a furious man aboundeth in transgression. And then, of course, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We're called to reject unrighteous anger, the kind of anger that is not based upon... So when anger is based upon an offense against me, that's pride. I'm angry because you've done something to me, I'm, I'm being proud. Uh, that's what it is. I, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen because it's built into me, right? So it's a natural human emotion. I feel it. This is the idea. Uh, I, was it, it was not in, in Ephesians 4. I think it's 4.26. It says, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. The idea is you're going to feel anger sometimes. Cut it off. Identify it. Recognize it. Get it done. Don't dwell on it. Don't allow it to become resentment. And don't lash out. And that's the idea of, of catching that. Um, I'm sorry I didn't put that in here. That would have been a good one. I think it's it's Ephesians 4.26 if you want to write that down. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Get things taken care of. Don't let them linger. Don't let them dwell. And the reason why is because then it will become bitterness and resentment and that is dangerous.
2: Uh,
0: Ephesians 4.26. double check that. Yeah, I know it is. Never mind. Um, So now let's talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness is the other side of this coin. This is, this is really where, where people struggle. Forgiveness defined. Colossians 3, 12-14 Put on therefore as the elect of God holy and beloved bowels of mercies kindness, humbleness of mind meekness, long suffering, forbearing one another forgiving one another if any man have a quarrel against any even as Christ forgave you so also do ye and above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Ephesians 4, 32, I just read those. The last verse says, Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. The definition of the forgiveness that we are supposed to extend to others is the same forgiveness that Christ extended to us. And take a moment to think about that. Jesus Christ goes to the cross for those that hate him. He's on the cross and the people that killed him, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He did not just offer forgiveness, but he begged the Father to offer them forgiveness. This is how we are supposed to forgive others. Total, complete, even if they don't deserve it, even if they haven't asked for it. How many people that put him on the cross were begging him for forgiveness when he said, Father, forgive them? I would say none, but he forgave anyway. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is a releasing of a person from what they have done against you. It is not to say that I, um, and we'll, we'll talk about this more uh, on the next pages, this doesn't mean that I've forgotten what they did. It doesn't mean I'm going to let them hurt me again. But what it does mean is that I am, I am not factoring what they did into how I treat them or how I interact with them, aside from the idea that fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, right? I'm not going. Forgiving you does not mean I have to let you harm me. Forgiving you means I'm going to release you from the offense that you have done against me and I'm not going to factor it into my relationship with you. Principles of forgiveness. Your relationship with God is tied directly to to forgiveness. Matthew 6 says it. Mark 11 says it. uh, Matthew 6 verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive... Men, their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men, their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is not talking about being saved or not being saved. That's on the condition of Jesus alone. Jesus purchased our forgiveness on the cross. It has nothing to do with me. If it has something to do with me, then salvation is by works, and I can earn it or not earn it. And then salvation is no longer a gift. Salvation is an exchange. It is a, it is a, a um, purchase. It's a It's It's a transaction. The Bible does not say that salvation is a purchase. It's not a commodity to be purchased. It's not a transaction. It's a gift that I receive. It was purchased by Jesus Christ. It's done. It's over. However, my relationship with God, fellowship, is a whole different matter. If I'm withholding forgiveness, if I'm not forgiving those that have done wrong to me, God will hold that against me in the sense of he will withhold from me fellowship. He will withhold from me blessing. He will withhold from me his his fellowship, because I am withholding it from someone else. This is a big deal. If you want a proper relationship with God, you cannot afford to be living in bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness. You simply cannot afford to because God will treat you in the same manner that you treat others. And this is, this is really important. Um. So he says in Mark chapter 11 verse 25, And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have ought against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. So we need to make sure that we have our hearts right before men. Uh, Forgiveness should be, number two, absolute and perpetual. Matthew 18, 21-35 Then came Peter to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Until seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. That means all the time, right? Uh, Seven is the number of perfection or completion. So Peter thought, yeah, I'm being pretty good here. I'm saying uh, a perfect number of times. And Jesus says, not just a perfect number of times, but 70 times a perfect number. Every time someone does something against me, even if it's the same offense, I should forgive them for it. Verse 23, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. That's a lot of money. For, but for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and his children and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave the debt. Forgave it. Like, did, he didn't just say you've got more time. He said, I am releasing you of the debt. 10,000 talents. That would be a lot of money. More money than I'll see in a lifetime. But the same servant went out, verse 28, and found one of his fellow servants which owed him 100 pence. That's very little money. And laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till till he pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told their lord all that was done. Then his lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldst not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due. So likewise shall my Heavenly Father do also unto you if ye from your hearts forgive not every one of his brothers their trespasses. You've been forgiven a great debt and you've been allowed to have a relationship with God through that. You've been forgiven more than you could ever imagine. I mean, we can think back on our lives and the things we've done and it has been released. You've been forgiven. How arrogant... How selfish, how blasphemous is it that I will withhold a forgiveness from a brother when God did not withhold forgiveness from me? It's, it's literally blasphemy. It is spitting in God's face to say I reserve the right to hold against some, anyone else. I don't care. I don't care if it's Hitler. I reserve the right to hold against somebody else what Jesus did not hold against me. And this is, this is absolutely, it's just arrogant presumption. It is the height of arrogance to think that I have the right to something that God did not even claim the right to, which is to, to not offer forgiveness. Forgiveness needs to be total. This is not an easy thing. So there was a man that hurt our church five, five years ago, six years ago, something like that. And um, hurt me hurt my very, it was a very small church at the time and effectively cut the church in half which was not saying much because there was only 20 something of us, brought us down to just 15 or so people um, because people were offended, people were hurt, I mean, people were crying when, when, when the situation happened and um, one of my favorite things after that was to dwell on it And to think about how he was wrong and I was right and I was in the right and he was in the wrong and how much he hurt people and how much that made me angry. That fed my flesh. I loved it. It felt good to feel right and to feel justified and to to blame him for the pain of everyone else. But what I knew is that I can't do that. What I knew is that I need to get it right. So I began begging God, God help me forgive. And I even, I had to go so far I couldn't forgive. And so the Bible says in Proverbs that a gift given in secret pacifieth anger. So I bought him a really nice gift, and I just sent it to his house, anonymous. I did everything that I could to try to, to, to assume biblical principles. Um, and I would get to the point where I'm thinking about this, and I would dwell on it for minutes, for, for hours. And I'd say, I can't do this. Lord, help me forgive. I forgive him, I forgive him, I forgive him. And that was a process of about three months, where at first it took a long time <laughs> And I didn't want to do it, but then over time it became easier where I'd dwell on it and I'd say, nope, can't do this, just a couple minutes, and then I'd cut it off. I, I forgive him, Lord, help me forgive him. At the end of that three, about three or four months, I was able to think on him without any anger or resentment in my heart at all. Now, that was just for something, you know, him hurting the church, hurt, hurt me, hurting my, the people I love deeply. You can get a lot deeper than that, right? Girls that have been taken advantage of his children, those sorts of things, the resentment can really be deep, but we've got to we've got to we've got to release it. It's what God has commanded us to do. It takes time, it takes effort. I'm not saying that it's overnight. You can't just say, Oh, I'm done. I mean some people can. I envy those people. I can just say, Yep, okay, whatever. I'm not one of them. But it's gotta be done. You've gotta release it. You're holding bitterness, you're holding resentment, you're holding anger in your heart. Not only is it an offense against God, but it is it is holding you back from your, your relationship with God and it is it it's affecting you and it's affecting the relationships in your life. I I can't say how, but it is. It does. Forgiveness, number three, does not remove the experience, but rather it removes the experience as a barrier between you and the offender. So that man has still never asked me for forgiveness, but a couple of years ago he started emailing me and asking for my help. And I am able to help him without an issue. I I, I, I have thrown myself into helping him in the endeavor that he's going into right now and I love him and I'm happy to help him and did he still hurt me? Yes. Do I still know it? Yes. Did it still hurt back then? Yes. I've forgiven him. Has he asked for it? No. Is there something between he and I because of that in that sense? Yes. Because he's not, he's not sought reconciliation. But I can think on him without anger. I can help him without, without a problem and it's okay. Now, again, I'm not going to put myself in another situation where he can do that. If he, if he came and said, hey, pastor, I'd like to join your church again, I'd say, we've got some things to talk about first. And I would require that he apologize to me and that he seek out and apologize to every single person that was in the church at that time, true repentance, before we would even consider allowing him back into that level of trust again. But just because he does not have that level of trust does not mean that I cannot open my hand to him in love. And this is where we need to be with this concept of forgiveness. Uh, you, you hear um, uh, uh, the, the guy, that movie that came out based upon that book Unbroken, right? I don't know if you saw that. Angelina Jolie directed it or wrote it or something. Um, and it was about that guy who was in a Japanese internment camp and was horribly treated. But he came to Christ while he was there. And actually the book is apparently significantly more, I haven't read it, but the book is apparently significantly more um, of, a, of a strong testimony of Christ than the movie was. But as in that book, it recounts that at the end of, of this whole ordeal, and, and many years later, he was actually able to stand before those men that tormented him and forgive them. And the idea that this is the idea: uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a, um, a, a, pr- a prisoner in, in Russia during the gulags, he was he was in gulags. He wrote the book Gulag Archipelago, and uh, it's just like that thick. Um, And he recounts uh, situations where he was being beaten. And as he was being beaten, he would tell them with each lash, I love you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, to where there was no guard in the entire prison that was willing to beat him because they couldn't handle the conscience problem of being told to beat a man that's actually forgiving you as you, as, as you're being beaten. Uh, You you read these stories of these men who had divine capacity assimilating the scriptures to where they say, I'm releasing you from the offense even though you're harming me. Seventy times, seven times, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you for the same offense. This is divine. You're not going to find it outside of Christ, but it is what Christ asks of us, that we forgive others even as Christ has forgiven you. I, 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 I don't presume to know what you've gone through in your life. I don't presume to know the the terrible things that people have done to you, the terrible things that they've done to your family, um, the things that you've experienced. But what I do know is this. Christ has asked us to do as he did. He set the example. He led the way. He's not asking us to do something that he has not done himself. He's asking us to release people from their offenses. It does not remove the experience but it removes the experience as a barrier between you and the offender. Psalm one hundred three, ten to 14 He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. So he pities, and he knows that we've sinned, but he does not deal with us according to our sin. Right? And that is forgiveness. You know that they've done wrong, but you don't deal with them in accordance with the wrong. Now, what does that mean when you're standing in court and someone has molested your child and the law wants to throw the book at them and you want to forgive them? Well, forgive them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that as far as, should I pursue civil damages or should I, should I pursue criminal damages? Well, in, in most states, if something like that happens, the state is not going to let you just drop the case, right? So you allow the state to do their thing. Um, one of the things that, that uh, I had to contend with um, in, in my profession is, if, uh, when I, I, I was trying to become a chaplain for the police. And one of the policies that I would have if I was a chaplain for the police is that I would not ever, I I told my wife explicitly, if I'm ever on a ride-along and something goes bad, you do not have my permission to sue the police department. I'm out there. I'm doing this. The last thing we need, even if it's their fault, the last thing we need is for me, as a servant of these men, to be tearing down the institution in some way, shape, or form. Let's forgive Let's move on. Let's just, we'll, we'll let that go. The Lord will take care of us as far as money. So when, when, when we talk about the difference between criminal and civil, well, if there's a criminal offense, criminal offenses, the state's going to take care of that. You, you do what you need to do. But you certainly come to the place where you forgive them. And I would say that you need to be, be very prayerful before you try to do a civil damages type thing where you're trying to, to punish them yourself uh, for things. And again, I'm not going to tell you yay or nay on those things, but I would, I would encourage you to be very thoughtful about can I say I am forgiving them if I'm also extracting something because of what they've done to me in that sense. Um, forgiveness is an important thing. and As I've mentioned, when I've experienced certain people learning to forgive, it has absolutely changed their lives. It has changed their lives. For some of them, it's physical. They've actually stopped physical symptoms that they had before. Uh, for others, it's just emotional. Reconcilia- uh, reconciliation of relationships or simply the ability to move on. Here's the interesting thing about forgiveness, and I, I want to respect your time, but um, when you, when you um, live in resentment and unforgiveness towards someone, you're actually, uh, especially if you're waiting for them to ask for forgiveness. If you're waiting for them to ask for forgiveness before you give it, you are now binding yourself to them. To where your emotions, you are going to maintain this bitterness and this anger until such time as they choose to come to you and reconcile it. So now you are binding your spiritual life, your spiritual, your spiritual relationship to God to their decision making. Don't let them do that. Forgive them. Sometimes people will not forgive you as a way of punishing you or not ask for forgiveness as a way of punishing you. Never punish a person by, by not forgiving them. This is, this is sinful. This is, this is not right. We don't punish people by withholding forgiveness from them. Let God do the punishing. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. You do not have the right to exact vengeance upon anyone. But
2: you can ask God
0: to. Yes. Yes, you can absolutely because vengeance is of the Lord. And those are the imprecatory prayers that we talked about last week. Well, you can ask God to, to avenge you, but it is not your right to avenge yourself. It is not your right to withhold forgiveness It is not your right to use forgiveness as a tool of leverage. It is not your right. And when somebody seeks to withhold either forgiveness from you, you can't can't deal with that either, right? I mean, you have no control over that. So you reconcile. You ask for forgiveness. You make it right on your end. And then between you and God, it's all good. Maybe not between you and them. Maybe they'll never forgive you. Maybe you've lost that relationship forever. That's unfortunate. But between you and God, if you ask for forgiveness, it's done. Between you and God if you have reconciled it yourself. Um, if, if you are in a family, and, and I was actually to, a, to a, a small degree in a family like this growing up where I perceived forgiveness to be entirely about earning it. So somebody asked for forgiveness, I'd say, yes, I forgive you. But then I'd expect them to have to earn their way back into favor with me. And I actually um, carried this even into my marriage where I had this tendency to when my my wife had done something wrong once very early in our marriage and she came up and she acknowledged her wrong and she said, I'm sorry, I should not have done that. Please forgive me. And I said, I forgive you. And then a couple weeks later, we were talking about something and I believe we were arguing again and I brought it up again. I brought up the offense. You did this two weeks ago and she looked at me and said, I thought you'd forgiven me. If I had truly forgiven her, then I would have released that and it it doesn't come up again. It's no longer... it's not leverage. If you or your wife have a list of offenses that you keep and you bring them up whenever you're, you did this to me, you did that to me when, when, when there's an offense, you did this and you did that two years ago. Remember two years ago? There's no forgiveness there. I thought you said you forgave me. I did forgive you, but do you remember? No, it's not forgiveness if it's not released. Forgiveness is a release of the offense. That's what, Saul, that's what this last one here said. Psalm 103, 10 to 14. He does not deal with us according to our sin. It's released. If it's not released, it's not forgiven yet. So we release it and others are, we, we, we help others learn how to release as well. That's what Jesus did to us. He released us of our offenses. He forgave us of our sins. It doesn't mean he doesn't know that, that they exist, but they don't factor in anymore. So my wife confronted me and she said, I thought you said that you'd forgiven me. And at that point, it was like lightning, I realized. I have an entirely misunder- uh, entire misunderstanding of forgiveness. I've been living this way. And I readjusted my mind right away to say, you're right, if it's forgiveness, then it's done. It's gone. And if I'm not willing to do that, then I'm going to withhold from you for forgiveness. And if I withhold forgiveness, then I know that my father's not forgiving me. And so that's going to stop pretty quickly. And I'm going to get it right. And if we do this, imagine if we lived this way. Imagine if our marriages were this way. Imagine if our families were this way. Imagine what that would be like if our children and parents and husband and wife actually uh, humbled themselves, asked for forgiveness, gave forgiveness, released offenses and moved on and it's done. Imagine what that would do for us. Imagine what that would do for our society if we understood that. Imagine what that would do in our churches if we could get a hold of what it means to forgive as Christ forgave. It is. Yep, yeah. We're a society that, that doesn't understand forgiveness. It is a part of why the legal system is what it is with suing and everything because there is no release. There's no willingness to take a wrong, to take an offense. There's no willingness um, to acknowledge my own error, you know? You, to, to say this was, this was you know, the, the, the woman that spills coffee on her lap and then sues McDonald's and because the coffee was hot. Uh, and she's angry and so what is she going to do? She's going to take it out on someone because it certainly couldn't have been her fault, right? And uh, it it, it all, it all, it all connects. So that's where we'll stop. We finished class five. Next week will be our last week and we will either do earthly and heavenly treasure or the Christian family or we might try to do both. Um, I think I'd like to do the foundation of the Christian family, talk about how the family should be run and everything. And then um, if that gets finished, because it's not super long, but we'll probably have a lot of things that we'll talk about in it. Um, We'll just stop with that. If not, then we'll get on to the earthly and heavenly treasure thing. Either way, I'll give you this document so that you can have it. Um, I have not made Class 7 yet. I may not because I've been really, really busy. Um, So I may not end up making Class 7, which was the Christian's um, relationship to society. And we kind of talked about that a little bit when we hit that music discussion is a little bit about culture and how culture is today and how we need to be careful with culture because culture is drifting farther and farther away and we need to make some tough decisions there. Um, But that'll be for next week. And thank you for your time and for your interaction. It's always better when people interact. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next week.